I've been thinking this week about the importance of thinking about Jesus throughout the day and how good it is to find every opportunity to be a remembrance of Him. I think it would be good if we could find a thousand things around us in life to remind us throughout the day of Jesus Christ. I think it's good to form a habit of connecting the things that are seen with Him whom having not seen we love. You see, Peter says in 1 Peter 1.8, whom having not seen, speaking of Jesus, you love. You love Him. If we would cultivate a practice of attaching things around us to Him, there would not be an hour that would go by that we wouldn't think of Him. This passage in front of me here and seeing Jesus at the well and being told the time of day forever changes for me that time of day. And I will, throughout my life, think of Jesus at the time of day that I find Him here at the well. But for example, when you rise up in the morning, it is good to remember, I think, how Jesus rose up a great while before day. Needing strength for the day, He sought it not in more sleep, but rather in private time communing with the strengthening Father who alone could equip Him properly for the day. I think that you construction workers and those of you who work outside would do well at midday at noon when the sun is hot and you are weary from being at work already to pause and think upon our text here where we read in John 4, 6 that Jesus, therefore being wearied from His journey, sat thus by the well and it was about the sixth hour or twelve noon. When three o'clock comes around in the afternoon, I think it would do well. Some of you have a coffee break at that time. Others of you are getting off work at that time. Some are even on the freeway at that time. I think it would be well if we all remembered at three o'clock that it was at three o'clock that Jesus Christ gave up the Spirit on the cross, passing away and finishing the work that the Father had given Him to do on the behalf of our sins. Three o'clock should be a special moment for us as we recall that. I think it would be good if in the evening when you get into your comfortable bed and you set your pillow just right or the two pillows or whatever it is that you have in your system, that you would remember Him who said in Matthew 8.20 that the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay His head. You see, I think that the whole world could become a system to us of reminders if we would cultivate this habit and use the world in this manner in the times of day and all, I think we would think upon Jesus a lot more perhaps than we do. Here we find Jesus at 12 noon straight up, wearied, sitting thus by the well. Last time you know that we began to look at the Gospel of John, chapter 4, verses 1, running down through verse 6, and we ran out of time, so we didn't finish our last thought. I would like to do a little bit of review here and just talk for a moment about what is going on here. Let's read through the verses, and then we can get into it. In verse 1, it says, Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, Though Jesus himself did not baptize, but his disciples, 
He left Judea and departed again to Galilee. But he needed to go through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. And it was about the sixth hour, or twelve noon. Now, all of this takes place in the land of the Bible, commonly referred to as Palestine. You may have wondered, what is Palestine? How does it relate to Israel? People have asked me that along the way. The land of Palestine is about 120 miles from north to south. It is commonly used that word Palestine to refer to the land that we find in the Bible. Palestine is a geographical designation, in other words, for the land particularly west of the Jordan River that God gave to the children of Israel, as you recall in Joshua in chapter 13, running down through 19. He gave it to them as an inheritance. It has been called by different names. For example, in the Old Testament, at times it was called the land of Canaan. You find that in Genesis 12. It has often been referred to as the promised land. You find that in Deuteronomy 9. It is the area that was designated Israel at the division of the kingdoms in 931 B.C. So we're talking about this area. It's about 120 miles long. We know it as the Canaan land, the promised land, Israel, Palestine. This is the area that Jesus is moving around in. Now, what you had by the time of Jesus was basically three different areas in this land. To the south, you had Judea, the whole area of Judea, around Jerusalem and to the south. Then, going north from there, you came to the area of Samaria. And if you kept on going north, you came to the area known as the Galilee, in, including the Sea of Galilee, as well as the area around it, the Decapolis, which is the ten cities that were near there. So, this is the basic breakdown of the area at the time of Jesus. Jesus, as you know, was wanting to leave the place where he was, which was nearby John the Baptist, because a controversy broke out about who was gaining more followers. Now we read in this passage that when he heard the Pharisees are alerted to this and they're becoming concerned, he decided it was time to leave because he didn't want an undue and untimely response to the situation on the part of the Pharisees, which he knew would draw too much attention to him and lead him to an untimely death. And so he moves out and away from the area of Judea, moving toward the Galilee. Now, we read in our Bible that he had to go through Samaria. And you remember our map last time? Some of you were wondering where Shechem was on the map, I understand, last time. I heard rumors about wondering where Shechem was. Well, I never claimed to have Shechem on the map, by the way, as a footnote and as a disclaimer. But I did say Sychar was on the map, and it was. We got into a big discussion about Shechem, and you were looking for it on the map and assumed if I was going to talk about it, it ought to be there. So I'm sorry for the inadequacies of my last-minute map. However, this area that Jesus had to go through, as we talked about last time, was this area of Samaria, and there was a centuries-old feud that was going on between the Samaritans and the Jews. Part of that was because the Jews had intermarried at one time and the bloodline had become mixed and the Orthodox, classic Jews didn't like that. 
and they had also mixed their worship of God. It was a hybrid of paganism, idolatry, and the worship of the one true God. So we read things in the Old Testament like the people feared Jehovah and served their idols. It's a mixture. And that mixture really comes out in the conversation with the woman at the well and Jesus. So Jesus is moving up into this area, and we are then surprised when he decides to go straight through Samaria. Now this was, in fact, the shortest distance up to Galilee. It was a three-day journey from where he was. If you were to take the journey that the Orthodox Jews and conservative Jews took, it would take you east across the Jordan, and then you would travel up, and you would have to cross the Jordan again to go on up into Galilee, and that would take you about six days. So it was faster to go straight through. But the Jews, with their rivalry and prejudice with the Samaritans, would usually take the longer route. The ones who didn't care, of course, and there are always those who go straight through and take the short distance. So we find Jesus taking that short distance, and we talked about the issues that revolve around that last time. Now, in our discussion, we talked about the place of God's timing and Jesus moving in that direction. We talked about the place of baptism, just to bring up some issues and discuss them. We talked about the place of Samaria, which we have just reviewed. And that left only one thing, which was the forethought, and that was the place of Christ's humanity in this passage. I want you to know that in reading John chapter 4, verse 6, now Jacob's well was there, and Jesus... Therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. That statement has arrested me for weeks. Even when I read it just the first time through a few weeks ago, in preparation for the first message that we have had in this chapter, I stopped there and just had a desire to stay there. And something in my heart just kept drawing me out there. So we're going to stop there and stay there tonight in our study, because I just want to share with you some thoughts that come to my heart as I read this amazing statement. You might think it's pretty much a simple statement, nothing here, let's move on. I don't think so. I think we need to stay here, and I'll tell you why. Here we have the place of Christ's humanity. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus being, noticed wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well, and it is twelve noon. Here we have the humanity of Jesus, and specifically, there are a couple of things that we see here. One is this is a very good demonstration of his humanity. This is a graphic demonstration of his humanity. You read here, being wearied, he sat, notice, thus. Sort of an odd phrase, he sat thus. Why is the thus in there? It seems that that little word, thus, is very difficult to reproduce in English. It has a a force that is difficult to bring over into the English, and it is there really apparently to enhance the idea of utter weariness. Being wearied, he sat thus. It's referring back to how weary he is. You could say being wearied, he sat just as he was. Sort of like a tired man flings himself anywhere and anyhow, just wants to sit down, not caring where he rests. You understand what that's like? You come home sometimes, you get in the house, you literally kick off your shoes and just collapse onto the nearest couch and you don't even plan on moving for at least another hour. You fling yourself anywhere, anyhow. You just thus. There you are. 
being wearied, you collapse on the couch thus. So utterly, here's the idea, utterly worn out, Jesus sits on the well. It is so precious to me that as you study the Gospel of John, one of the main things you discover is is how John so succinctly brings out the manifest deity of Jesus Christ and the glory of God that dwelt in him. And yet, another one of the amazing characteristics of this book, which is so deep, is how John is also careful to talk about and emphasize the manifest limitations that Jesus had and the weaknesses that he had in his manhood. So the glories of deity in a human body, and yet also the weaknesses of humanity as Jesus Christ was truly man. And it's amazing how John brings both out. That great Lutheran commentator, Lenski, had some great words to say on this. He said, Jesus did not cease to be the Son of God when he became man. He did not drop his deity, which is an impossible thought. He remained what he was and added what he had not had, namely a human nature, derived out of a woman, a human mother, and he became the God-man. That's what we have here, and what John is emphasizing here is the man side. John never forgets either term that he introduced to us early in the book when he said in John 1.14, the word became flesh. He never forgets either side of that. And so we have both all throughout the book. And here we have manifested very graphically the humanity of Jesus Christ. You may be interested to note it is only John who records Jesus on the cross in chapter 19, verse 28, saying, I thirst. It is only John that does that. It is only John who tells us that Jesus says to the woman at the well, give me a drink. And the idea here was not that he wants to show us how clever Jesus is at opening conversation. He is not wanting to show us how cool Jesus is at conciliating prejudices between two different peoples. He is showing us that Jesus was genuinely thirsty. That's the point. And how human he really was. It is a graphic demonstration of the humanity of Jesus Christ. John is showing us this. When God became man, he did not become halfway man. He did not become part man. He became all man. Jesus, being wearied, sat thus on the well. So we come to look at this and we realize that to Jesus being completely human, human, fully man, labor to him brought weariness. And so we have this amazing mystery that he who is the one who said he is the creator of the ends of the earth and neither faints or is ever weary, clothed in the body of a man and 100% man, wearied, sits thus on the well. An amazing demonstration of the humanity of Jesus Christ. It is a demonstration of his human weakness. But there is another thing here that captures my attention, and that is the benefit to us of his human weakness. The benefit to us of his human weakness. There's a couple of things I want to suggest to you. One is as we look at this, and we see our Savior at midday, wearied, hot, exhausted, we have an example of his ministry to us. That's the first thought I want to give you here 
the example of his ministry to us. This is a benefit of his human weakness. You see, as you look at his example here, one of the things you pick up very quickly if you keep staring at it is that Jesus Christ was content to be poor. I don't know if you've ever thought about it, but as you look at the weary Savior sitting by the well, you have to realize he walked to that well. You see, in 2 Corinthians 8 9, I'll just read it to you. Paul says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor. You through his poverty might become rich. So think about this. He who made the world, and we know from the beginning of the book that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and all things were made by him. He who made all things. He who owns the cattle, as the, the cattle, as the Bible says, on a thousand hills, was a lifelong pedestrian. Walked around as a peasant rabbi. Said that he had no place to lay his head. He said, I'm even poorer than the foxes and the birds. The point I'm telling you is this. As an example, Jesus shows us he was content to be poor. You notice that you never read of Jesus riding around in a carriage why don't we see that it says, and they were moving with their caravan toward Sychar. And Jesus pulled the curtain back and looked down at his disciples and said, you guys go get some food. I'm going to park over here by the well. Now trot on down the way. And then he ordered his slaves to lower him down and they carried him out and sat him thus on the well. We never read of Jesus riding an animal except one time. You realize that? And that was at his triumphant entry and it was on a donkey's colt. That was as humble as it gets. So here I look at this and I marvel at this. That the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the Creator of the earth, walks up to this well and he is so wearied from his walk, he was content to be poor. And you know what that tells me? It tells me that he knows what it's like to be poor. It tells me further that men need not be ashamed of being poor. Now, unless you have brought it on yourself by mismanaging your opportunities, by sinful living like the prodigal son, in that case, you ought to be ashamed of being poor. But if, on the other hand, you have been godly and you are still poor, it is no sin to be poor. Like Topol said in Fiddler on the Roof, it is no great honor either. <laughs> but, <laughs> Jesus was content to be poor. It's not a shame to be poor. There are worse things in poverty, believe me. And you see, you have to realize this. Whatever a man or a woman amasses along the way in terms of material possession is really along the lines of the nature of luggage in life. It really has nothing to do with your truest personality. It really is something that you're going to leave behind in the end at the toll gate of death anyway. So you might as well look at it as luggage. It isn't something that can really give you contentedness, contentment, Look at it this way, and please realize this once and for all, wealth is no mark of God's favor. 
There are a lot of very wealthy people in the world. Some do pizza advertisements. Some do other advertisements. There are a lot of wealthy people in the world that do not know or care about God. Wealth is not a sign of God's favor, nor is poverty a sign of God's displeasure, given the fact that you are walking close to God. That's the bottom line, of course. But if you are living near to God, then wealth is not a sign of His favor, nor is poverty a sign of His displeasure. Let's face it, poverty may, yes, be a hard heritage, but at the same time, a poor man who loves God learns to be rich in fellowship with God and the things of the kingdom of God, so that through his poverty, the Bible tells us he made many rich whether they have a lot of material possessions or not. I have found that some of the sweetest, most joyful, contented Christians I've met anywhere in the world are the poorest. I'll never forget when we went to the Philippines. We went to the island, we went all around the Philippines, and we went down to the island of Mindanao. And we took uh, a bus three hours through the jungle mountain roads, got down to this little tiny village dirt roads. It's called Epil. And there the Christians that were living there, some of them lived out in the jungle. And this one night it was so stormy, I would have classified it, being from Orange County, as a typhoon. And uh, yet there were these people that walked and walked barefooted out of the jungle. And I found out later they walked eight miles barefooted on the dirt roads through this pouring torrential rain just to come and hear the Word of God taught. And then as they passed out these little cakes and uh, instant coffee from thermoses and sat around us after the meeting, all the people and the leaders crowded into this room and all the people that had walked so far through the rain stood out in the rain with umbrellas for hours. And at 12 midnight, when we all broke up to go our ways, I found out the next day they then walked barefooted through this torrential downpour of rain eight miles back to their homes. And yet these were the sweetest people you'll ever meet in your life. I remember the next day when I heard about this, one of the pastors there said, would you like to go out and meet them? We'll just go on out into the jungle. You can go over to one of their homes. I said, well, sure, I'd love to. He said, now, bear in mind, these people are very poor. They're dirt poor. And we went to their house and he said, you see what I mean? And it was a dirt floor. He said, these people love the Word of God so much. He said, "All if you would go there, it would make their whole year just to hear a Bible study taught. So I went there and I taught from the book of Matthew on uh, three important responses to Jesus, which was our Christmas message here this year. And just, you know, did it off the top of my head and heart. And they literally stood throughout the message and wept and cried the whole time. And I looked at these people, and when we left, they were so grateful. And I thought, you know, a lot of Christians where I come from would do well to be transplanted into this kind of environment and have a lot of their luggage stripped away so that they could find real riches, find real contentment in God. Jesus, wearied, sits thus by the well. One of the reasons is because he's so poor, he had to walk everywhere he went. No camel, no donkey, no horse, no carriage. He didn't own any of that. He didn't even have a place to call his own. And so we learn some very powerful things here. 
And you know there's times in the sovereignty of God when you find yourself poor. Again, it is no sin to be poor. And maybe God is working in your life at that time. Jeffrey B. Wilson has well said that the pilgrim is not to despise the comforts which he may meet with by the way, but he is not to tarry among them, nor leave them with regret. So God may bless, God may take away, you might find yourself rich, later you might find yourself poor, and you might find yourself in between, but the point is this, to realize that what is true gain is godliness. That's true gain. So that Paul was able to say, you know what? I've learned how to be happy when I'm abounding. If God takes it away and I've seen him do that, I've learned to be happy abased. Either way, I've learned to find this in the midst of it. My contentment is found in God. Why was Jesus content to be poor, a lifelong pedestrian? Because he found his contentment in his fellowship with the Father and the work that the Father had him to do. And that brings me to my next thought. Not only was he content to be poor, but he wasn't afraid to weary himself in God's work. You see, we look at this exhausted figure sitting at the well. Jesus, being wearied from his journey, sat thus exhausted at the well. That preaches to us a very powerful message of what he was. He was 100% human. And it also preaches to us what we should be as his followers. We should be like him. In this passage, it's interesting that when his disciples come back from town, they have a funny reaction from him. Look at verse 30 of John chapter 4. Now, you remember, he sat down, they went into town, and then we read this in verse 30. Then they went out of the city and came to him, spoke to him saying, Master, eat! And he said unto them, I have meat to eat or food to eat that you know not of. Now that is very odd. Why? Because he sent them into town to get food. That's why. And he, they come back and he's all involved in ministry again. Ministering to this woman. He's deep into it. And they're all concerned. They know how tired he is. They know how hungry he is. They know how far he's traveled. And they say, Master, we came. We're back. We have the food. Hurry up before these fries get cold. Just kidding. <laughs> and he turns around, he says, I have meat to eat you know not of. Like, well, what is this all about? Therefore, in verse 33, the disciples said one to another, did anybody bring him something to eat that we didn't know about it? And Jesus understands this, and he said to them, no, my meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. The greatest driving passion of my life is to weary myself in the Father's work. It means more to me than anything else. In other words, he works himself out to the very edge of his capacity. We have to look at this and realize if he didn't shrink back from that kind of service that involved labor to the point of weariness, then how should we be? That's why I say this picture here not only proclaims to us what he was, but what we should be. And it's very important to see that. In 1 John 2.6, it says, He who says he abides in him ought himself to walk just as he walked. One of my favorite commentators is Alexander McLaren. If you locked me up in my room with nothing but coffee, 
and uh, meat to eat that you know not of, uh, for days, and you only left me with Alexander McLaren, I'd be so happy. I just love to read his sermons because I happen to know that he often works 60 hours a week on his sermons. And when you read his sermons, once you get past the fact that you think they're so flowery, you can't understand them, you realize they're so deep that you couldn't understand them back when you were so shallow. But as you go on in life, you begin to appreciate them more and more. And McLaren, on this very verse, had this to say. He said, I wonder how many who profess to follow Jesus Christ have ever known what it was to yield up one comfort, one moment of leisure, one thrill of enjoyment, or to encounter one sacrifice, one act of self-denial, one aching of weariness for the sake of the Lord who bore all for them. He goes on to say, The Christ who is so wearied by his unceasing labor of love sits on the well as a rebuke to those of us who consent to walk in the way of his commandments only on the condition that can be done without dust or heat or those who are ready to run the race that is set before us only if we can come to the goal without perspiration or messing up our hair. He says, this is the example we are to follow. Jesus, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. And what a tremendous example he is to us of laboring hard for our God. And then there is something else that I want you to see here as we look at this example of the Lord to us. He was weary with a fatigue that was unique to teaching and leadership. And this may be something that some of you don't understand. Did you ever ask yourself why it is that he is sitting on the well and the disciples have gone to get the food in town? Have you ever asked yourself, even in passing, I wonder why he didn't go with them. Why is he there and they are over there? Why is that? Well, I'll tell you what I think it is. I think it was the fact that they had gone away into the city to get food and left him there because he was more tired than they were. I think it's that simple. And I think that in all probability, the fatigue and the weariness that he was experiencing was mental weariness combined with body weariness. The kind of a thing that when you have the two things, when they come together, they make a man much more tired than just physical fatigue. You see, there are those that have the idea, I've encountered this many times over the years, there are those that have the idea that to think and care for others and to preach and teach is not really difficult work. In fact, there are those that think, you know, preaching is just all about praying for an hour or so and reading the chapter during that hour before you come out and then you just kind of read through and shoot from the hip and tell some story about being at the restaurant last night with your kids and, you know, read a little more and uh, just kind of let the Lord lead. And hey, I don't know where I'm going with this, but, hmm, you know, it's good stuff. There are those that think that preaching is not hard work at all. You can go outside of the pale of Christianity into the secular world and ask those that study public speaking how fatiguing it is to preach any kind of message, to, to give a lecture, a speech. And they'll tell you that an hour of speaking in front of people publicly is like a couple of hours of tennis at least. So to get up and teach the Word of God requires such mental strain and focus and effort that when you have that combined with the anxiety to do good, 
to the people that are around you, and the wear and tear of moving around as a poor person without being carried everywhere or riding on an animal, when you have this giving out of the mind as well as the body, then you have the picture of our Lord here tired. I am confident, I'm just absolutely sure that the reason he is still there is because he was much more tired than his disciples were. You see, they had little to do but follow the master. They just did what he told them to do. He had to be, on the other hand, the leader. When you are the leader, you carry a burden that the people that you are leading know nothing about. They cannot, because they're not in that position. They can be sympathetic. They can pray for you. They can think good thoughts about you. They can tell you, hey, I'm really thinking about you. You know that line people say to you, hey, I'm really thinking about you. And you're going, that's fine. But if you pray for me, I'll be happier, you know. And they can tell you that, but they cannot know the stress that you bear. Jesus had to be the leader. And on the leader comes the stress and the strain of thought and care, as well as the instruction and the teaching. For example, turn in your Bible to Matthew, to chapter 14, looking at verse 14. And here we see the contrast of the concerns and anxieties of Jesus for those around him as looked at in contrast to the disciples. Verse 14, it says, And when Jesus went out, he saw a great multitude, and he was moved with compassion for them and healed their sick. And you know that as he always did, he was also preaching and teaching at the same time. When it was evening, his disciples came to him saying, This is a deserted place, and the, hey, it's getting late. Send these multitudes away. Get them out of here. Let them go to the villages and buy food. We've had a long day. Send them away. Now that's the attitude of those that were ministering with him. But his attitude is found in verse 16 when Jesus said to them, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. So you see, they see it's getting late. Hey, they assume their job is done. He has to think ahead. He realizes there's too many of them. They're too tired. It's too far. There's no way they can get food. So he wants to go on and continue to minister to them. He's bearing a burden that disciples know nothing of at that point. And that's the way it is with leadership. Go back uh, just to the left to Matthew to chapter 8. You have another example of this. And here they are in the boat, Matthew eight twenty four, and it says, Suddenly a great tempest arose on the sea so that the boat was covered with the waves, but he was asleep. Then the disciples came and they awoke him, saying, Lord, save us, we're perishing. Now, bear in mind, these are seasoned fishermen. They live their life on this lake. It must be a pretty bad storm for them to be that afraid He's not even a fisherman. So here he is in this horrible storm and he's asleep. Does that tell you how tired he is? They are awake. He is asleep. Same syndrome as the Savior wearied from his journey sitting thus on the well. It is this mental fatigue as well as this heart anguish, this aggressiveness to do good, this care for those around him. The twelve... And then all those that were on the peripheral point of service, those that attended him, and then the multitudes as well, 
and to go out beyond that, you will realize he prayed in his high priestly prayer, not only for them, but for all those who would believe as a result of their ministry. This is the kind of care he carried around in his heart and anxiety. And that is why he is so tired. Paul the Apostle, in, in talking about his ministry, in 2 Corinthians 11.23, said, Are they ministers of Christ? I mourn. He lists off all these hardships he went through. And then he said this in verse 28 of 2 Corinthians 11. He said, Beside all those things that are without, there is that which comes upon me daily, which is the care of the churches. In other words, it's painful as his physical difficulties were, and as heavy a burden those things were to him, and as he said that his spiritual burdens were even greater. Jesus, being wearied from his journey, sat thus on the well. So the first benefit of looking at his human weakness is the example of his ministry to us. Please know that he was fatigued as he was because of the ministry of leading and feeding. And be sensitive to those around you in the body of Christ that have a similar ministry and the fact that they bear a load and a point and a level of fatigue that perhaps you don't know a lot about. Then another thing I want you to see here is that part of the benefit of his um, human weakness is his personal ministry to us. And this is such a testimony of his great love for us. You realize as you see him sitting there weary at 12 noon in the heat of the day, exhausted, he cannot even move to go with the disciples, that so much of his suffering is because of his great love for us. Don't you ever realize in looking at this how he was constantly exercising a tremendous self-constraint? Here is the suffering, weary, Savior, truly a man. But... Given the fact that he was truly God, couldn't he have easily refreshed himself? He could have sat down at the well and thought about his journey and how tired he was and thought, oh, after all, I am God and there's no one around. And just, oh, I feel better. A little zap of heavenly power. The kind of thing I give out to the multitude, just a guy good here at the well. I feel tremendous. I'm going to catch up with the fellas on the way to the market. You see, here he is tired. And he could have easily refreshed himself, but you notice he does not. You know why? Because according to the divine order of things, it would not be right. Because Jesus came to suffer as a man. To literally live as we live. So that he could minister to us. So he is exercising this constraint and not coming over into his humanity and just taking over miraculously to refresh himself. You remember when he was in the wilderness and he was tempted by the devil? Did you ever wonder why he didn't make the stones into bread? The Bible says he was hungry after fasting 40 days. He didn't make the stones into bread because he came to be a servant and to suffer as a man. And we know that it was wrong for him to turn the stones into bread because the devil tempted him to do it. And the devil only tempts you to do things that are wrong. So we know that it was wrong at that point in the divine order of things with God's plan. Know this, Jesus never wrought a miracle for his own comfort. And that's the picture we see at the well. He is constraining himself. He used his miraculous power for others, but he knew for himself 
that he had to suffer in his humanity to bear our infirmities so that he could rightly minister to us. And so here I see an aspect of the strength of Christ and the love of Christ as I have never seen it before. Because here I see that there's a strength about Christ's love that I have not entered into before. Do you realize that here, as we see the Savior weary sitting at the well, that here is the strength of Christ's love that is so strong that it holds back His deity. Here is the love of Christ that is so strong it holds back the omnipotence of Christ to put the stars in their place. That is the strength of His love for you and for me. He is suffering at the well because He loves you so much. Because He loves me so much. John 4, 6, Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. He could have easily broken through all the infirmities of manhood, but he must not. Why? So that he in all things could be made like his brethren, as it says in Hebrews 2, 17, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Spurgeon put it this way. He said he bears exhaustion. He bears deprivation of comfort. He bears, in fact, the very curse of labor which our father Adam brought upon us that in the sweat of our brow we should eat our bread. And he bears it still with a magnanimity of condescension which cannot be imitated. It is far beyond our conception and infinitely beyond our venturing to follow him. We can only admire and adore here. This is holy ground. Our Savior sitting thus by the well-weary It's a testimony of His great love for us. And this is all the means then of His perfect ministry to us. He went through this. He lived like this. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted like we are, yet without sin. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. Listen, if he had never known this kind of weariness, he could have never said to you and to me, Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He couldn't have said that. You see, Isaiah 53, 4 says, Surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows. Isaiah 40, 29 says, He gives power to the weak. And those who have no might, to them he increases strength. How does he do it so perfectly? Because he exercised a great self-constraint. His strong love held back his omnipotent deity, his great power. And he suffered as a man, 100% man, not half man, but all man. So that as you suffer, and when you are weary, he can perfectly minister to you. And you can come to Him and you can say, Lord, I am weary in Your work. I am not weary of it. But God, I'm weary in it. I'm tired. Jesus, You know. I see You there at the well at noon, weary. You know what it's like to be weary. Minister to me. And so the Bible says, come boldly before His throne of grace. You might find mercy to help in time of need because He's been here. He's been with us. He's lived as one of us. And now He's gone back into heaven to intercede for us. And this is the rich, powerful meaning of this verse. Jesus, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. There was a European monarch who worried his court by often disappearing and walking incognito among his people. 
When he was asked not to do so for security's sake, he answered, I cannot rule my people unless I know how they live. There's a great thought in the Christian faith. We have a God who knows how we live because he too has lived this life as we live it. And he has suffered as we have suffered. And he suffered with no, no claim to the advantages that he could have had to live a life other than a common man. Here is our Savior content to be poor, a lifelong pedestrian, sitting weary by the well, ministers so much to my soul of the love of God and Jesus Christ for me. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your great love for us. To see you there, Lord, so weary, by the well, asleep in the boat, hungry in the wilderness, all the while denying the very thing you gave out so freely to others who were in need, because for our sake and on our behalf, you knew that you had to suffer to the full extent of common humanity, that you could minister to even the most common man in his hour of need. And so, Lord Jesus, we thank you and we praise you this day for your great love for us. May we come to you freely in our time of weariness and know that you are there eager to minister to us and to strengthen us with your love and your power. We bless you and we praise you for these things. For we do pray in your name. Amen.